The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa, and welcome to Business is Boring. Just a quick note, our audio today is going to be a little different than usual as I'm calling in over a remote connection. Today's guest, Julia Arnott-Nini, has worked around the world in senior strategy roles in technology companies in the US, UK and Australia. She was called back home by the need to help create more digital equity here, having seen that today, Pacific people make up under 3% of our tech sector. She has co-founded Fiberfale, a platform for Pacific people in tech to create more digital inclusion. Their goal is to achieve equal population representation by 2042. To talk her journey and their work, Julia Arnott-Nini joins us now. Talofa lava. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Simon. Very pumped to be here. Very pumped to chat about how our business is not boring, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Hey, so tell me about your path to super senior roles in some international like US corporates and then back home. How did you get started on that path? What attracted you to the world of um, of, of business? Yeah, I don't think I was ever actually attracted to the world of business. I think I was always trying to prove that I was a worthwhile investment to my mum, to be really honest. So <clears throat> I have an incredible um, an incredible mother who is a professional um, businesswoman herself, and um, I've seen the many sacrifices that she took, she, the risks she's take, sort of taken, the opportunities that she um, walked herself into in order to to give me everything that she could as a sole parent. Um, and with that in mind, I was always conscious of, far out, I've got like a, you know, a million dollar bounty on my head. How the heck am I going to pay her back? Um, and that was kind of how I started to think about, all right, where do I position myself where you don't need a lot of A pluses because I wasn't an A plus student. That's a fast-growing industry that could future-proof me so I wouldn't um, sort of get left behind. And then I, to a certain degree, where are all the, um, I wouldn't say cowboys and, and, and cowgirls, but where are all the, the opportunities where you don't have to be a perfect box to fit in, but you can be a little bit more expressive. And for me, I found that in technology and the, my whole strategy, and this is kind of ironic as a strategist, my whole strategy to getting into corporate was not a strategy or or maybe it was a terrible one that ended up lucking out. And it literally was sit down on the floor, rebuild your resume, go on LinkedIn, apply for 150 jobs. The ones that said quick apply were my best friend because you didn't have to do a cover letter. 
and just hope for the best. And I and I played the numbers game super hard. So I went for where are the biggest cities where there'll be maybe the most amount of jobs and the most amount of chance that I might get in. And, and yeah, that's how I got into business and corporate. Um, not a not a glamorous story by any means, but a real one. Yeah, well, I love that. Like um, technology and advertising are two worlds where there is still room for people who can be um, pirates, right? Like mm. especially startup spaces and especially in some parts of advertising. Tell, tell me about your journey through that and, and what does being a strategist mean? Um, it, you, you know, because that's a term that's used a lot in those, those kind of worlds, right? That doesn't necessarily mean anything outside them. Yeah, totally. So um, I... I mean, advertising found me, I guess, is is one way to call it. So um, in my final year of university, I was doing um, a Bachelor of um, Commerce, majoring in Marketing and Media and Comms. And um, with that, some of the major organizations come out and present themselves to university students and sort of share about their graduate programs. And one of them was Cleminger Group. And again, when you talk about being a pirate, I mean... I was a little bit of a little shit. And I used to sit at the front of my classes and just ask questions to just test the lecturer and just sort of like, I get you, you know, a fancy word is to call that critical thinking. I think at the time the the their lecturer was like, could this person please not be quiet? So anyway, I went into this um, presentation with the Clemenger Group. And similarly, um, the Paul Courtney at the time was talking all about the major successes of Clemenger Group and and um, what does it look like to sort of win, win awards? And I decided, you know, just channeling my inner little rascal, I said, you know, what do you actually care about if it's aside from profits? Like what does success look like to you and what does an award look like to you if it's not about making money? And it was at that point that I, um, I think I might have sparked something within Paul Courtney at the time thinking, ah, this is someone that's not just receiving information but is getting curious as to why, what's beyond that, what's behind that. And then he came up to me afterwards and he's like, hey, you should be a planner. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, I can barely plan my life. What are you talking about? And um, <laughs> it was strategic planning, right? Like, I, again, planning as a language, as a code or as a practice, it's like, what? That, that sounds like it's in building. And then he sort of explained his strategic planning. He's like, what you just did, and but asking why, 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 why? And I was like, oh man, that sounds like a pretty deep job. Like, I'm, I'm down for that. Like, I do that already. Just see it as maybe just trying to crack some laughs at university. Um, and then, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up um, segueing into advertising was, was I guess, someone seeing something within you and that's a natural um, behavior and then explaining that that's a whole practice. And then through that, applying myself into the grad program, getting selected. And I was actually one of the first grads to be selected for strategic planning because it's normally a more mature practice within advertising, I guess. Um, and I suppose a way to explain it really is is going behind the mask or going behind the first layer of what you see to understand what are the deeper triggers, motivation, barriers behind why someone does something. It's it's I think it's maybe like a, a bit of a um, I don't want to call it a shallow version, but a, to a degree, a start of um, psychology or neuroscience when it's looking at human behaviors and and what makes us tick um, and the way in that's then used just for advertising means. Um, but at the essence of it, it's all it's all about understanding why do people do what they do and what drives us as human beings. And places like advertising have so much influence on how we read and, and imagine our culture to be, right? And it's the planners who are, you, you know, s setting up how 
advertising fits into a cultural context. But advertising is one of these areas that has some of the worst representation of culture uh, in that it's one of these places where they have these big internship programs. So the only people who can afford to, to work for nothing for like a year and a half have rich as parents. And, you know, like that, it's a really kind of exclusive world um, in, in so many ways. Um, although there is room for kind of interesting thinkers, um, it's not always clear how they're going to get in there. Yeah. I find, um, to be really honest, advertising for me was like a morally bankrupt industry. Um, I had, you know, I was called the token brown person in front of a whole floor of, of people in the office. I remember um, heads of strategy telling me that they had to knock my morals out of me. Um, I really struggled to be in that world and I... Um, I don't advocate for it at all because I think the the basis of it, the essence of it is not the values in which um, I embody and want to see in the world either. And um, yeah, I, I, I really struggle. Like I, I only stayed in advertising for one, well, in an advertising agency for in the sense of a, a mainstream agency for one year um, for those reasons because I just, yeah, I really, really... Um, I really struggled in it and, and it is because of the foundations of which it's built on and it's not made for those that that um, necessarily are, are trying to um, fight for justice. Uh, <laughs> it's not a place for us to thrive necessarily. Yeah, and like the old school ways of advertising that are kind of manufactured, highly created stories, a big new change started coming through with the social world, the social media world, right? Where you couldn't just put something out that wasn't true because everyone would come at you and you had to be more authentic, you know, still in the context of, you know, corporate life, but had to be more authentic. Tell me about your path into kind of the social side of things. Yeah, I mean, um, for me, I wasn't ever consciously thinking about trying to get into social. Again, for me, my love was all around the human side and human insights. Um, and I was always about trying to test ways in which that could make a difference and ways in which that could then support other areas of the business. So I was never necessarily um, planning to get into social as a as a manifestation of what I do, but it was much more around how do I stay close to the heartbeat um, of, of humanity and understanding the whys and, and, and wanting to help. I mean, I think at this point, again, I, I believe that working for a corporate was success. And so I I was very much drinking the Kool-Aid of American Gatorade, um, and uh, I, I really thought that that <laughs> I laughed because I feel like it was so I was so innocent as well, right? So so innocent. I think that's what is um, pride on is um, believing that helping an organization is helping the world in that sense of a corporate. Um, and so when I fell into social, it was really just, oh, well, how could I use my skills to help something that's bigger than myself? And social was another vehicle to do that. And that's how I really fell into that place. Yeah. Tell me about your path to the States as well as, you know, at this really well-trodden places that lots of people from Aotearoa go. And the States, it's a bit harder than going to work in Melbourne or work in London, Um and, and it's such a big world and so influential to New Zealand and so influential to our tech scene and our corporate life. Um, but yeah, how did you find it coming from a New Zealand context into that context? And, and yeah, t tell us about where you ended up in the States. Yeah, I kind of, um, look, I was at the I was in the States for about a year and a half approximately. Um, and how did I end up in the States? So I first was working in, I worked went from um, 
Auckland to then Sydney to London and then to and then over to the States. And um, when I landed in London was when I started to join or when I joined HP. And um, I really struggled in London. Like I am so happy to say that I struggled because I don't think enough people talk about how they don't like London. I think there's a lot of narratives around how London's amazing. And then I, I almost um, lied to myself in order to kind of maintain being part of the group. Um, and so I resigned from HP while I was over there. And I, um, I sort of, look, I didn't really tell them it was because I was having an existential crisis and I didn't align with capitalism. And I recognized that, you know, the economic um, society we live in is rooted in colonization and the doctrine of discovery. I didn't exactly say everything to my boss at the time. And what I did say was that I um, actually struggled with the weather. Um, I said to him, I said, oh, you know, like I'm Samoan and um, it's really gray here. And, um, you know, it's not quite, I, I'm just not, just not, not finding it super easy. And anyway, he ended up saying to me, oh, well, actually, what about um, California then? What about San Diego? And I was like, oh. And because I, I never I, I never assumed that if I was trying to leave that someone would stop me. I never had that in my mind that I was a worthy talent or a worthy resource, again, or I was valuable to an organization like HP, that if I said, oh, look, I'll just, I'll just leave now, like, thank you, thank you for having me, that someone would actually say, oh, no here's another option. And so that really blew my mind. And um, he offered San Diego, which was incredible. And I sort of just said, oh, well, I wouldn't say no to that. And then I found myself two weeks later from from London moving over, getting moved. And like, we had, oh, it was, it, it, again, it just completely blew my mind. There was like all these lawyers and, and then there was um, people helping with visas and all, all of the things that a corporate has the benefits of around those foundations to help you move um, internationally. And then I landed in San Diego and, oh my, it was, um, there were a couple of things about living in America that I, um, I recognize. And one is, for me, um, with my personality and, and I guess with how I show up in the world, um, California in particular was a lot easier for me to be myself than, than a place like London and a place like Aotearoa, New Zealand as well. Um, I found that there was so much more freedom for confidence to um, express yourself, to speak up, have a loud voice to the degree where obviously you sway that in certain on a certain spectrum and that actually can be... Um, yeah, like anything that's in moderation. Um, but for me, I found it really liberating um, to operate in a place where um, um, laughing, big personalities, um, um, honestly, being proud of yourself was the norm versus um, completely against all odds like it is here locally at times. And so I really appreciated that in living in America. I did find, however, um, that I started to become a lot more distrustful around society. And I think a part of that is the 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 very nature of, of kind of how how individualistic America can be, or at least my experience of it can be, and how, you know, the government's not really even there to look after you. Um, there's a lot of need for self-preservation in order to survive. And so for me, I was, I was so naive, man. I remember one day I went out shopping and the, the, the shopping assistants were like, oh, yeah, do you want to sign up for a rewards card? And I was like, oh, okay, like I think I'll come back here, like, you know, at the grocery store or whatever. I got signed up for three credit cards in one day because these reward cards were not – like they were their reward cards, but they had a credit system to it because everything is around your credit score and your credit rating. 
oh my gosh, bless little Julia. She was like, oh yeah, sure, sure. And they're like, what's your social security number? I was like, oh, here you go. And like just didn't even realise the, just didn't realise the severity of the decisions I was making because of how this their society, I suppose, is built on, the infrastructure of it. And there are so many instances like that where I just, um, yeah, like I, I had my bank account hacked into, I had all sorts of things where, you know, I, I I don't resent anything that happened over there for this for this in the sense that it's so much around survival of the fittest, and I I I don't want to say I fully understand, but I I guess I can hold empathy for that and and really see oh okay, I um, the reality that we have over here is very very different. So those are two big ones was the was the trust factor, but also the freedom factor for me um, that I really appreciated. And 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 additional to that, it's like. If 80% of the population thinks that they're the shit, well, then maybe like 60% of them will go after it and try. 40% of them will actually like execute on that. And then how many of them will, will kind of see their ideas come into fruition? And I think about here locally of like, we're not allowed to think we're the shit. We're not allowed to even try. We're not allowed to even get to the start line and the systems aren't there to support us. So then who actually gets through? Where, where is business actually created from? Um, and that was like another quite a um, profound insight for me as well um, that has definitely come with me on the way back home. Yeah, I think also because New Zealand is so, you know, I t- totally, um, you know, having worked a bit in the States and and, and in the UK, like, yeah, we as um, a UK dominant culture over the past in New Zealand, we have that same repression and that same lack of honesty about our situation that the UK has. While America... You know, for all of its um, faults, it's out in the open, right? While the British, you know, they, 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 they are so far behind in coming to terms with like, you know, who invented slavery? Who put mm-hmm. all the slaves in the US? You know, like mm-hmm. the fact that the US has like um, much more to the surface social issues is only because they're further along and being honest about them, I think. And I think, do you, do you see any parallels to New Zealand in that way? Oh, no, we're way behind here in New Zealand um, in terms of being um, honest about our social issues and where did they start from. Far, far behind. Like, even conversations around the doctrine of discovery, like recognising that Christianity was a vehicle for colonisation, like, that's not your standard boardroom chat. And why not? Why wouldn't it be? Um uh, in terms of then, well, how does that then impact in terms of, you know, the economic world that we live in? How does that then lead to the fact that having a seat at the table is is not actually success when the table itself is built on oppressive systems? So, yeah, I for me personally, um, and again in my experiences, we're, we're a long way off around um, being able to have open conversations and, and, and honest conversations with ourselves more than anything and then with each other, right? Because the awareness has to be built within self in order to be able to extend that to others. Um, and I think we're still, I mean, again, I guess a lot of it comes back to fear and fragility and just um, where our comfort zones are. And I think we're quite a comfortable country um, and we rely on staying comfortable um, a lot more. And we'll be back in a moment to hear from Julia Anotnini about how she came back to New Zealand and her work in building Fibre Fale. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way 
to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Hoki mai anō, and we're back with Julia Anō-Nini. So tell me, what was the call that brought you back to Aotearoa and that's led you to start Fibre Fale? Yeah, it was um, partially it was being left on scene for like, I don't know, five years on LinkedIn by um, our amazing um, former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Um, but more than that, uh, I, it was so when I was working um, for HP, and again, working in Insights, we had an, an incredible organisation that we were able to partner with called Sparks and Honey. And they do a lot of future trends, um, looking future forward, you know, a lot of that foresight work. And um, in my first year of working at HP, it became really obvious to me that mission statements like make life um, better for everyone everywhere are beautiful aspirations. But at the crux of it, the only people that are benefiting um, from technology are people with dollars and coins in their wallets. And the size of the wallet equals the benefits of technology. And there are no two ways about that. Like digital inequity is inequity exacerbated. And whilst I was working in, in, in HPI, you know, I was always, I was, oh, bless her little soul. I was always desperate to try and make a difference, right? To try and do more than just do my job. And that was extensions into society of, of strangers. And I remember, um, you know, saying, oh, well, well, there's a thing called e-waste and what are we doing in e-waste or, or what are we doing in this? Or how could more people access devices? And, and, you know, I was always hungry to find a way to, to kind of, I guess, um, fulfill other areas of what, what, what it looks like to be a human for me. And um, one of the things I started to, to notice was around the tech gap and the digital divide. And I, I talked to my manager at the time about it. You know, I was, I had all these things bubbling up inside in, like, in a typical young person fashion of like, what am I going to do? This is this, this is this. And, and he was amazing, my, my first manager. And um, we had sort of a great relationship. And then this, this organization, Sparks and Honey, did a whole presentation on the tech gap and the digital divide. And oh my gosh, I lost it. I was like, woo, game over. This is it. It's real. I'm not crazy. Big one was, I'm not crazy. And um, this is a real thing. And um, that's when the calling, I guess, it was already brewing. And I, I mean, again, going to the um, back to my foundations of, of my values and what I saw my mom, mother doing growing up and, and what she cared about. And it was always about this aspect of service and, and trying to make the world a better place. And then it really came to a head and around the industry I was working in and what I was witnessing and absorbing around me. And then the aha moment was the digital divide. And I did what any normal young person um, would do, and I decided I'd email the Prime Minister. Um, and so I found her on LinkedIn, <laughs> and I wrote this really, like, oh, tragic and, 
innocent message, just sort of asking, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just really curious, you know, what is being done to future-proof those most at risk of being left behind because of the fourth industrial revolution, and I'm sorry, um, you know, and 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 you know, um, job displacement and automation, and and you know, oh, can I do anything? Is there anywhere I could learn out, learn more? Like I wasn't even saying you should have a whole policy in this. I was just really desperate to learn more. And that was, I guess, when it all, for me, I, I remember um, I emailed, or I messaged two of my best friends at the time, and I, I think I even sent them a gift or something, and I just wrote in the, in the card to them, I said, I don't know what's just happened, but something's just click, and I think I'm going to remember this moment for the rest of my life. And um, that was it for me. I, I, that was the calling really coming to, to the fore. And then from then, it was really about all the decisions I made after that around how much do you listen to that calling? Um, how much do you lean into it? How much do you listen to it? How much do you believe it when everyone around you is also not seeing what you're seeing? And how much do you trust yourself in that? And so in that spirit of service, how do you then come back to the country and set up to kind of, I don't know, like get a, a, a view of the landscape and see where things are happening to help with digital equity and and, and what's going on is it's such a big problem to bite off, hey? Yeah, yeah. So when I sent that sort of um, message and I and I recognised that this was something that was more than just, you know, like I, I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm going to eat healthy this week. Like it wasn't just something that I was going to say and then not follow through. Like it was, it was much more. It was a full body shift that I felt. Um, I then moved to California and. Um, I knew that it wasn't stepping necessarily further forward into purpose for myself, but it was about building my kete of of skills and experiences that I could then take home. And when I did finally, um, I resigned again, and 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 that was accepted, and and there was um yeah there was no going back from that decision. And I was making my way back. You know, I really didn't have a plan, and that was on purpose. And a lot of what I spoke about was um, understanding the soil in order to figure out where to plant the seed. And that was really the mindset I had about coming back and and um, around my role in digital equity was not to assume that I had one, not to assume that I could make a difference, not to assume that I had any answers by like any stretch. It was so much more about coming home to, to first and foremost just be here and be present and to, to learn and to understand and absorb. And then to, through that process and with the, with the space of Talanoa with others, is to understand, can I make a difference? Should I make a difference? Um, where am I best placed to add value? What does that really look like? So it was v- much more around an emerging sort of formation, form, formation of, of Fibrefale, what it is called now, but a formation of also myself and what is my role in this. Um, and it was very much not to assume that I had one. And I think that's where, again, I've really um, shared that with a lot of, um, in a lot of forums, especially around social issues. And I mean, I probably have something against the the big four that automatically assume that they should have voices on a whole bunch of different things. Um, but for me, it was like, how how do I also remind myself and hold humility as a really core value around, you know, am I best placed? Should I be placed in this? What is my appropriate role to be placed in, in serving this? Um, and not to, not to automatically just jump into the doing, um, because I think that's where a lot of things can, can fall over. Yeah, and there were some amazing programs underway, you know, things like um, Tupu Toa is something that I had experience of how amazing that was working at 
Vend, a company that, that I was involved with. And so, yeah, tell us about coming back and meeting some of these people who were working in this space mm. and, and how that kind of coalesced. Yeah. So when I came back, so um, I'd already started this sort of, oh, I know, again, um, Julia, <laughs> young Julia, she, um, I was already on LinkedIn and I was already reaching out to different groups and I, I saw um, panels that were being hosted and I, I just said, hey, look, I'm, I'm a, a Pacific um, wahine over in California. Is there anything I could do? So I started, um, I started doing videos. I started going on talks when I was still in California and I actually met my first co-founder while I was over still in San Diego and we started to just get to know one another, understand if there was a little bit of, of you know, sort of alignment around missions, around interests, around sort of vision around what could be created. And I'd already sort of done, I guess, a level of um, exploratory research to a degree while I was um, still um, away from, from Aotearoa. And when I landed back, it was a lot about following through with those meetings in person, um, showing up to Tupatua events, um, been to a few of them myself, um, meeting a lot of new people. Um, yeah, I, I, a lot of my time was just about um, meeting and greeting. And one of my first jobs when I got back from California was actually working out at um, South Seas Healthcare in Otara um, during the COVID lockdown helping them with marketing com and comms and trying to get more Pacific people to be tested and to get vaccinated. So I did this massive pendulum swing in my world from like corporate, you know, um, uh, top 50 kind of a company uh, or from a size point of view, all the way into really local, very localized, very around place-based systems change, health inequities. And um, it really helped me to almost shed myself, I guess, or unlearn a lot of the, the ways of being that I had um, acquired over time. And um, I just, again, I always went in with the, with the mindset of um, a really high level of learner. That's one of my, my, my big sort of strength finders, uh, top, top five attributes. Um, and just learning about other people, learning about what they're doing, learning about how I could serve them in the first instance, how I could serve their missions, their movements, um, their organizations. And I did that for at least, um, you know, a, a fair few years before we started to think about how could we create something together, my, my, my ex-co-founder and I. And the first iteration of that was called People for People. So we sort of both had kept our full-time jobs and we were just doing this all on the side and we tried to identify different gaps in the, in this space around um, what does it look like to be rangatahi-led, youth-led? Um, what does it look to, like to be Pacific-led? What does it look like to have lived experience of working in tech? What can we do that could add value? Um, how could that support our communities? And so, yeah, we tested a bunch of things for about a year and a half, two years. Um, we, we got a fellowship, um, a fir our first sort of fellowship involved with 100k and we made that last close to two years um, and we just sort of trialed some things and that's really the sort of I guess the sandpit for me was just testing and learning testing and learning lots of meets and greets lots of understanding who's doing what trying to build a bit of an ecosystem map um, and then figure out again I guess what makes us different what makes us useful are we needed and and how should we continue to to grow and evolve um, as we're continuing to learn about the problem and learn about those that are also working on um, interconnected complex problems. And what was the space that you found within that for Fiber Fale? And also, I guess, for your voice as well, as, you know, it's so important to be, you know, a person on the stage at something like Sunrise, the big festival that Blackbird, the big VC, puts on where I saw you speak. And, you know, be bringing a different view to, you know, um, I think it can be quite insipid, um, the diversity and inclusion conversation and a lot of this technology stuff and a lot of tick box 
box kind of stuff. And, you know, such a different approach and such a different view and something that, that you know, is actually making people think and change their actions. Yeah, totally. So I guess for me, um, what I started to recognize was that um, I guess this is where my strategy background not that it didn't become useful, but this when it kind of, again, became really, um, uh, it was very interconnected with what we were doing. So I started to learn a lot more around social change, systems change. I started to lo- learn a lot more around um, per- building a purpose-led organization. So what does that look like versus your kind of uh, beyond the triple bottom line, kind of moving um, beyond that, but actually how do you start to model a completely new way of being and and that being in your leadership style and your culture, um, the creation of your organizational culture from the structure, like our constitution, how our constitution's built, but modeling that there is another way of being, um, both from a not being a charity as well. Like how do we actually go against not becoming a charity? We're still a business, still an LLC. How do we um, demonstrate a new form of Pacific Young Leadership? How do we um, um, demonstrate a new form of, of business leadership to a degree? How do we demonstrate a new form of trying to drive change in our communities when we are those with lived experience from an industry point of view, plus a community point of view, plus a cultural point of view? So all of these different layers started to help us see that this is the place to play, I guess. Um, and I know that's so conceptual and it's like quite woo that the place to play was actually about us being the whole versions of ourselves. But really, if I think about it again, going back, everything intergenerationally, our history has been written for us by other people. Intergenerationally, like our narratives have built, been built by other people. The definitions of what we should and shouldn't do have been built by other people. And ultimately, the biggest and best place we can play is when we decide where we want to play and how we want to show up and how we want to do business to a certain degree, right? That is the ultimate form of disrupting this space. And and that is the ultimate form for me of success as well. And I know that that probably doesn't make sense for a lot of people. Um, and I guess it goes into kind of how much do you know about how the world's built and, and who's built the world. Um, but for us, what we've really started to, to recognize and what we've really started to see as a value add is being another demonstration, modeling another demonstration of, of being... Um, young Pacific leaders of, of being able to create a, a business and what it stands for that's different to how businesses are run today, to delivering in our communities in a way that is um, led by a community voice and is co-designed by community voice, and that really means something. And then on top of that, for myself and my co-founder to be in governance spaces and advocating wholeheartedly and courageously at those tables, at those boardrooms for change versus just receiving change strategies or just receiving information about DNI. And then on top of that, it's like um, deciding when and where we show up. So, you know, like you say, showing up to sunrise and, and the tick boxing. When we, what I've now recognized is when I decide to choose one panel versus another, I am signaling to both my community and to wider society that I have decided it's okay, that I have um, done my due diligence on this space and said I, I will show up in this space. And so even today coming on, you know, um, this podcast, I'm signaling that I agree to the values of this podcast, what this podcast stands for, and that I have chosen to participate in this space. So a big one for us is, is also around deciding when to say yes to an opportunity and when to say no and, and holding sovereignty around that and holding sovereignty around, um, you know, <laughs> it's very... Um, 
it's a very different way of viewing your body and your voice, I guess, when you know that um, you are not just operating as one, you're operating as an ancestor and as a descendant. And so every step in space that you move into signals um, this depth of that signal into your community is is beyond what you can even measure. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I think that thing around, you know, sovereignty as well and not being, you know, because so often DNI, especially in, you know, and it's not, people are well-meaning, right? Like, um, but, you know, there's this idea that you start a committee and it's sussed when actually systems change means changing everything. It means changing the board. It means changing the executive. It means changing the way you hire and employ people. You know, like it doesn't just mean starting a committee and getting a PowerPoint. And that's been a bit of the approach, right? So how do you as a group help to, um, but that's hard, right? Because like real change like that is really difficult for people and it's really new. And so how do you walk the, the line of being able to engage people so that great change um, can, can can result, um, but also do that in a way that doesn't mean that, you know, these these ideas are being, yeah, like just put into a little committee and they're seen as kind of, you know, sideways to the business. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a saying that I've heard um, from other leaders in different spaces and um, it's a, it goes along the lines of how much of our time is spent deconstructing a space versus reconstructing one. So what you're talking to is the fact that, um, you know, our role is to help others um, become more sincere, <laughs> they have become having greater depth and structural and systemic um, um, actions take place. And for me, that is part of our role in existing as Fibrofale. But that's not where I best want to put our energy. Our energy is in the reconstruction space, is in the modelling of the new ways of being and holding that out there as a... a you know, as the light, essentially, that there is another way. And us inviting others to come with us on the journey. And we know that, you know, we're going to work with the willing. Those that have the energy, the energy will move and the momentum will move based on when we focus. But, uh, you know, if I was to spend all of my my days going into tech companies and and analyzing their, de- their current state, working on their strategies, creating a future state, doing using all of my efforts and energies in that space, that would crush me. That would absolutely crush me. And I have to protect the well-being of, of my team and myself because every time we go and do that work, that's trauma-related work. You know, I've gone on into those sort of boardrooms and spaces and places and, and I've experienced so much racism. Even though I'm invited to come in as an expert, um, you're still faced with, you know, unconscious or conscious biases, your side comments, microaggression, macroaggressions, and and that takes a massive toll and I won't survive. No human can survive in the face of that every single day. And so um, we, we really try and look at how can we demonstrate and model a new way of being and then invite others and those that have already, you know, are on the journey because otherwise they wouldn't even be coming towards us into a space of learning with us. And those are the partners that we really try and nourish and build um, ongoing, deep and meaningful change together. Um, and we're not looking for one year fly in, fly out. We're not your Petri dish for you to test things. You know, we're not your your sort of recruitment agency that you're sort of saying, oh, we'll give you some funding and then can you put our jobs in front of your people? That's not what we're about. Um, and so, yeah, I guess to sort of flip the question is to, to assume that that's the kind of role that we want to play and actually challenge that and say, well, what if we actually 
spent more of our energy in becoming a Pacific-led tech company, a purpose-led tech company, and showing that we can exist in the industry and be different. And if we spent all of our energy on that, what was what change could that create in the world versus spending so much time of and energy into deconstructing the world in its current state in a traditional way? That's interesting. Like, I love that idea of being an exemplar. And then with the companies you work with to make kind of new exemplars of good mm. process, like... What does what does like a good process look like? Because it feels to me like there's a few kind of basic ideas that are finally starting to get understood, which is like um, you know the idea that you can't do consultation uh, at the end of a process, which sounds laughable, right? But that's pretty much how all um, consultation has worked um, in diversity and inclusion spaces forever until very recently, and that's wild. Um, but you know, what are some basic principles that that people should be thinking about? Like you know, partnership early, um, hearing, um, y- you know, being open to change. Like what what kind of things do organisations need to start embracing? Oh man, you're asking for unpaid labour, bro. You're asking for oh, unpaid yeah. labour right now. <laughs> okay, nah, don't, don't I'm just do kidding. That. Don't, I'm, do, don't um, do that. Yeah, I guess. Um, I I first want to say I'm not an expert on this, right? I just want to say I'm not an expert in this um, for large scale. And it always goes back to, well, what size of the organization is it? Um, who are the founders? What What is their own internal journeys they're on? I think a lot of this, as much as we want to look externally around what can we do outside of ourselves to change a company, for example, it always starts as what is the internal space in which you're operating from? The fact that my first instinct around digital equity was to go, I'm not going to assume that I have any answers or that I know how to do this or I know how to add value or I know where I'm meant to be, demonstrated that I wasn't assuming that I I was the the holder of the solution, right? Like I, I already started from a different place. That was the internal space in which I was operating from. When, when organization founders, C-suite board, you know, heads of directors, if their automatic assumption is to make a decision because they know exactly what they're doing, I think that's, again, a principle that I would start with is what is the internal space in which you're operating from? How much do you know around these problems of the world? How much do you know about equity? How much do you know about racism? What's the difference between indigenizing versus decolonizing? Have you ever said the word decolonizing? What does that mean to you? And so I suppose some of those the, the principles that I would start with is just asking yourself certain uncomfortable questions and spending time with yourself. And even that, that will be the hardest thing you could ever get people in business to do, right? Because I'm not giving you a silver bullet. Because I don't want band-aids. I don't want ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. We need so much more than that if we're going to see greater systemic structural change. So I can't give five top principles on, an, on a perfect checklist because it's not... It's, that we've been doing that and if we keep doing that and if we keep normalizing that, that holds the problems in place. I love I well, I love to hear that. Like that's that's great, you know, like and there's no there's no silver bullet and people have to start doing the work on themselves and looking at their own situations um, before looking to others to solve it. So tell me what stage you're at now with Fiberfale and tell me about the new cybernesia offering. Yeah, cool. So um, Fiberfile is all about um, building the next wave. And again, this is really intentional, the next wave um, of transformative leaders in technology that are that are of people of Pacific descent or our, our next gen of Pacific and tech. But, but more than that, we really want to see ourselves as being the creators and the controllers of the industry, not just the consumers and contributors. And again, that's a really purposeful play on power here. We don't want to just 
like myself come in and work for the the HPs of the world, but never actually necessarily transcend upwards or come into grad programs and never make, make ourselves um, known in terms of leadership and managerial opportunities. Um, and that's what's kind of happening at the moment um, um, across the across the industry. How do we start to see ourselves being in the startup founder space, being in the entrepreneurial space, being at the high tech awards and and going for the awards, not just being the MC, which is which is where I'm currently at. So how do we shift where we can show up and where we can play, but also how do we not just participate in the high tech awards? We build our own Fiber Folly Awards. So a lot of what we're trying to do and a lot of what Fiber Folly is built on is how do we design those new spaces and new ways of being and those different ways of viewing ourselves and our role to play. And so we launched officially November last year. Um, it was very exciting for me because I was able to go full time in August. And that was like, you know, the side thing becomes the full thing. And that's just a, I've always got to go back to that milestone moment when the times get hard. And um, we're just underway in our first proper sort of full delivery year. My co-founder is also coming full time. We've got a core team of four, but a wider group of around 10-ish um, contractors and partnerships. And we have just launched Cybernesia, our platform. So I do a couple of different things as Fiber Fale. We do a lot of community outreach. So we've got a conference coming up called VakaCon in Porirua this month. We do Fiber Funnels where we do um, coding camps or sort of teaching coding into, into our community. We do Fiber Funnels where we bring in role models and we um, share stories, learnings. We, we drive that sort of community building and weaving of ourselves together because we're going to be stronger and more able to succeed the more connected we are. We've released a content storytelling series called Tech Voyages, again, reclaiming narratives. We've got another one launching tonight called Our Stories, which is a beautiful portrait series. Um, we're doing a lot, I guess, when we think about how much work we're doing um, externally into delivering. And Cybernesia is one of those things, which is, I guess, one of the first supposedly um, or potentially digital spaces that are built by and for and with Pacific peoples. So the purpose of, of Cybernesia in its first sort of iteration is all about weaving together um, our community to have a safe space, to have a hub of sorts. A digital village is what we've, the kind of language that we've used for us to come together, to draw connections, to draw knowledge, to draw um, the opportunity to have safe spaces to ask questions, to learn more, um, as well as also trying to think about, well, how could this um, digital village or how could this hub further serve our community and our aspirations? What are our self-determined aspirations for ourselves with technology as a tool um, at our disposal? Um, yeah, so that's where we're at. I, I don't know. I've probably forgotten a lot of things as well. As you can see, we're running and falling and flying and, and paddling our waka all at the same time. And how can people get involved to support the mission? Yeah, so Fiberfile, we have our website, obviously, www.fiberfile.com, on all of our socials. Um, you can learn more about Cybernesia, what we do, um, about myself and my co-founder. And it always depends on, I guess, we look at um, how can we find industry partners that are really wanting to see, um, you know, our big goal is that there's equal population representation of Pacific peoples in technology by 2042. Highly aspirational, um, but it's sort of something to hold out there as the light. So we're always looking for industry partners because we need industry industry partners to drive this change. We cannot do this alone and we're really conscious about that. So we're looking for industry partners, looking for other community organisations that we can serve. So we really partner with community organisations and bring um, products and programmes to them. 
We're looking for role models, our Pacific role models. Wherever you are, if you happen to listen to this, we're always looking for further advocates to come and support the programs, come out to the community with us, but also so we can figure out how we can best serve you and your needs. Um, we're also doing our leadership camp coming up in June where we're actually looking for um, C-suite and sort of that sort of leadership that's typical leadership of technology, how could they come into a space that is a Pacific-led leadership camp? And rather than it be a, pa a panel, it's more like a cover circle. So again, shifting those power dynamics and actually be present and listening to the next generation of Pacific tech leaders. And, and so anyone that wants to come and be involved with that as well, please reach out to me personally. And yeah, I'm always open um, for a telenor. I'm always open to meet up as well. So, so finding me on any one of the, of the socials on LinkedIn or anything, um, also a place to, to start a conversation, start a connection as well. And just as a, as a final thought here, you know, a question we love to ask everyone is, what will success be for Fiber Fale? And what will success be for you? Mm. So um, success of Fiberfale really goes back to um, seeing a lot more creators and controllers of this industry that are uh, people of Pacific descent. Um, we, we really want to change the direction and the growth and the kind of the, the makeup, um, but also the essence of what is the tech industry. I think it's um, really overloaded with certain values and how can we expand that and how can we expand um, why technology organizations are built and, and how they serve the world. So that's the first one is, is really just seeing a lot more Pacific creators and controllers um, coming through and, and succeeding and, and having sustainable organizations and careers. For myself, oh, I'd love to, um, you know, my co-founder and I, you know, how could we have 10 or 15 more Giulione Teroas? Like maybe tomorrow would be great. Um, but, but success for me is would be um, knowing that Fiberfale has served my community and has existed for as long as it is needed. Um, I'm not assuming that Fiberfale should exist for, for X amount of time and it should always, it should always be present. For us. It's just as long as it's needed and as long as it's adding value. And for me, that is a full, a full life and a full career. As long as something that I've done has served a purpose, a higher purpose, and has um, in the world for as long as it is needed, um, that's success. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of your story today. And I can't wait to see where you take things next. That's Julia Arnott-Nendi. Kia ora, thank you. Oh, thanks so much, Simon. Appreciate it. So thank you to Julia, to you for listening, and to everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Te Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. E Nohora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Kia ora e tewi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.